You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Before I get to Drew Campion, Vayer Watches made this episode possible. Vayer is V-A-E-R, and I had talked about their waterproof nylon straps in the past. I actually switched that out for this trip that I did to Seattle to record this episode, swapped it out for the leather strap, and it was one of the very first things that Matt Warshaw complimented when we went to dinner that night. It's pretty nice looking. Vayer was founded in 2015 by Ryan and Reagan with the goal of designing a watch you'd never need to take off. So it's rugged and durable enough to wear in the water, but stylish enough to wear into the office or out to dinner with Matt Warshaw. Um, They nailed it too. Like the watch, it kind of, it fits perfectly under or over your wetsuit. It's kind of the right, exact right size and weight. Each purchase comes with two watch straps, so you could actually pick different colors. I got blue and tan, and then I added that third leather strap. Anyways, as fancy as it looks, the watch is waterproof, it runs on Swiss quartz movement, and they are assembled in the United States. You can support our work on this show and save money on your next favorite watch purchase on VayerWatches.com by using our promo code SURF10. Vayer is spelled V-A-E-R, and our promo code is the word SURF and the number 10. Saves you 10% on your purchase. VayerWatches.com, promo code SURF10. Proud to wear this and recommend it, so thanks so much. Thirty miles north of Seattle, off the coast, is a series of islands in Puget Sound. Washington State has designated them Island County, the largest island of which is Whidbey Island, 37 miles long, one mile wide, and home to 67,000 residents, and honestly probably 100,000 bunny rabbits, many of whom roam the paved downtown streets. The northern part of the island is occupied by a naval air station, and the remainder of the island predominantly relies on tourism, small-scale agriculture, and the arts, with a thriving theater community that attracts weekenders from Seattle. Often referred to as the Puget Sound's largest artist colony, Whidbey is home to numerous working writers, painters, sculptors, glass artists, woodworkers, poets, musicians. And this could be precisely what attracted Drew Campion to the island in 1991. 30 years prior to that, the Buffalo, New York-born Campion began his career in surfing quite suddenly as the editor of the relatively new Surfer magazine. He led the effort to transform the industry-leading magazine from a handsome but fairly straightforward sports publication into an innovative, mischievous, drug-influenced counterculture journal. I'm now quoting from Matt Warshaw's Encyclopedia of Surfing. Campion was the most protean of surf riders, shifting gears from contest reportage to editorials, equipment articles, environmental pieces, profiles, interviews, poetry, plays, reviews, and fiction. He could be murky and ponderous, but he had a playful side as well. At his best, Campion honored the sport by elevating it to a level above that of simple recreation. 
Now this is a quote from Campion. It seems to me that surfing by itself is clean and basic and real enough to transcend this era of anarchy and unrest. When wars and flags and religions and nations and cities and rockets and taxicabs and monosodium glutamate and television are gone, there will still be an order to things far beyond the order of power-crazed men. It'll be the order of the universe at equilibrium with all natural forces in balance. And that's what riding a wave is. End quote. In addition to countless articles in Surfer, Surfing, Surfer's Journal, Tracks, Surfing World, Surf Sessions, Longboard, and many other publications around the world, Campion has also authored over half a dozen books, including books on Greg Knoll and Jack O'Neill. In 2008, Campion became the first writer to be inducted into the Huntington Beach Surfer's Walk of Fame. I traveled to Whidbey on a perfect autumn day. I indulged in a lamb burger and a glass of Washington State Cabernet, overlooking the sound while I waited for Drew to wrap up an appointment. We finally connected after lunch and drove off the paved streets, followed the dirt road into an apple orchard that is part of a communal living compound where Drew Campion has his office. We begin this conversation with Drew sharing a story about an important moment he spent with John Severson, the founder of Surfer Magazine. My name is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I hope that you enjoy my conversation with Drew Campion. Tell me about getting John Severson high for the first time. Oh my God. Um, wasn't very long after I got the job, which was completely out of the blue. I mean, I was living up in Santa Cruz, right? And I had, um, I was an English major previous to that. I ended up in uh, Santa Cruz because I was a surfer and my wife was going to, uh, at the time, first wife, was going to dental school over the hill. And so she was commuting from Santa Cruz over to Los Altos to go to dental hygiene school and um, and uh, just through a series of coincidences. I mean, my life runs on coincidences. I think everybody's does. And if you talk to a guy named Rupert Sheldrake, he'll explain it in terms of morphic resonance. You know, there's this invisible memory that's in things and in us that causes uh, us to and things to resonate. They're on vibrational frequencies that, you know, that are familial or associative that create connections. So there I am um, uh, living at the hook down in Santa Cruz, Santa Cruz, right at uh, Pleasure Point and surfing and and, uh, and I got a job at the Wall Street Journal over in Los Altos or Palo Alto and I was commuting over the hill and stuff and so I, uh, and then they um, decided to have a pro surfing contest in Santa Cruz sponsored by Smirnoff and it was the first sponsored you know regular surf contest Maury had done one down in Ventura for nose riding but it wasn't like a regular competition it was a specialty specialty event so I covered this um, for surfer and you know they cut my 5,000 words down to about 500 or so like that and ran it <clears throat> and then I wrote a short story about a guy who takes LSD and and uh, 
and uh, they ran it because he dies at the end of the story. I think that they wouldn't have run it if the guy would have had came out of it with insights and, you know, like that. Uh, Pat McNulty was the existing editor and is very much of a rah-rah, uh, conventional sort of a Saturday Evening Post writer. Okay. And so then, uh, uh, and then I had done, uh, then another contest came to uh, Santa Cruz that was really important. It was, a, it was called a 4A event. They had had 1, 2, and 3A as the Western Surfing Association. Then there was an Eastern Surfing Association. So that's the way they organized amateur surfing competitions, normal comp contests, right? And so this was the first 4A, and it was an elite class. I think they had 32 or so competitors out of all the top guys. And so it was very much a, pre um, a precursor of the existing WSL format an elite group of people and they go on a series of events and this kind of thing. The first one of these was in Santa Cruz. So I covered that and they sent up their photographer, Brad Barrett, who Matt tells me is going to move to Seattle now. So I get to see Brad again. But um, it was just, so I had this one, two, three trifecta, the first pay contest, the, the first elite professional thing and this fiction that touched on LSD in a magazine that was very much anti-drug at that time had editorials against uh, marijuana. Rick Griffin was putting marijuana leaves into his cartoons and they didn't even recognize it. Those guys were, wow. so what we would have said was out of it at the time, they didn't know. So I came down, I got, I got the job, came down to Surfer. I was being paid $500 a month to be the editor or the associate editor working with John. And John was an extremely valuable education uh, for me. And uh, and then in return, I got him loaded the first time uh, over at my house, which is in San Clemente. Wonderful two-bedroom house on a side street in San Clemente. Beautiful, uh, 350 a month, something like that. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and uh, so we just, in the living room, got John stoned, and he was enthusiastic right from the start. Wait, was he... Was he reticent? Like, did you have to talk him into it? Why had he not? He was curious, okay. and he was curious, and there was a, a, a sub rosa language extant in his office. So he was not, you know, being an artist and curious and all this kind of stuff. And um, so he was curious because Brad and me and the art director at the time, we're, we'd have these conversations, and the surfers, pretty much people who were in the weed at the time. And... Um, and I'm not sure about acid or anything. I, I, that didn't really come up. That didn't come up at the time. But um, but the uh, but John was curious and just he asked me if if uh, if he could try some. So I invited him over to the house and uh, one evening after work and went there and <clears throat> and uh, we smoked a joint and um, he liked it. He liked it. I don't remember what he said, but he smiled and. Um, Shortly thereafter, he was inspired enough to, to want to share it with his wife, Louise. And Louise, at that point, having heard that he got, I got him loaded, uh, was pretty down on me. Oh, wow. You hired this guy from nowhere who had no qualifications or anything to come in, and now he's got you loaded. I can see that this is a sliding, <laughs> what you call it. Yeah, there's a downward slope. So... Uh, so then we brought some over to the house at uh, Cypress Shores, and Louise got loaded, and she loved it. <laughs> so next thing you know, we were doing <clears throat> we were doing uh, mushroom uh, capsules. We'd do the capsules and uh, psilocybin, and uh, 
and a couple of other kinds of things um, of the uh, of the psychedelic variety, and um, and smoking weed and hash when we could get it and stuff. But in the meantime, right during the same period of time, John got a new next door neighbor, which was this guy Richard Nixon, and Richard Nixon moved in literally right across the alley. His house abutted the, this little alley, which was really a downwards driveway, kind of a slope, paved down to the beach that was used for emergency vehicles if they needed to pull somebody out of the water and rescue them. So the jeeps could go down to the beach and across the train tracks, and there was Cotton's Point, the best left-hand point in Southern California, right there. And above that was the Cotton Estate, you know, built in the early 19, 1900s, 18, yeah, 20th century, early 20th century, that's the 1900s still. And um, uh, I forget the guy's name that built it, but it was a classic Spanish style, right above the tracks on the bluff, palm trees and this beautiful Mexican place, villa. And across from that and uh, was John's place. And John's place was up on the bluff as well and separated by this, but he had like a three-story house. And the top story, he had a deck on the side that looked straight into the, uh, the backyard of the Cotton Estate. So when Nixon moved in, John was really excited. He said, oh shit, we're going to sell some to Life magazine. So I'm going to take pictures. So he sets up his tripod tripod on the, uh, on the deck. And on the tripod, and Nixon's kind of started to hang around there now. They've fixed, finished the remodel and stuff. And you're starting to see security people and the, and the new the video cameras. First time I ever saw these wooden boxes with holes in it like that. Every 20 feet or so around the whole perimeter up on the, on the wall. So um, he's excited about this. So he gets the, our prize Surfer Magazine Century Lens, which is a thousand millimeter lens, mounts it on a tripod on the deck and aims it at the president. So naturally, suddenly, uh, some attention was aroused. And so he got the pictures and he sold them to Life Magazine. I didn't know this. Yeah. And uh, I was to do the article and I did the article and the article he named and I'm working on a piece for Surfer now that goes through all this again. The, the, his title was Prez Nix Rocks Sam Clem. Prez Nix Rocks Sam Clem. And, uh, but Life took the photos, used some of the photos and did, just did captions with them. They didn't really use any story at all, which was a, a cry and shame. But now I have a new opportunity to talk about it. I mean, do you have access to those photos? Well, apparently he gave him the Life magazine. I just had a search for those a couple of months ago when I was decided to do this piece finally. And um, I'm not sure. We got one great shot of Dickie looking through the window in the Cotton Estate. Wow, isn't that nice in there? And that's really the only shot. And then there's, of course, a couple of outstanding um, beach walking shots of him. And I remember... Uh, seeing Nixon on the beach there was really amazing because he's such an alien being. And my own emotional core reaction to Nixon for years has been one of sympathy and feeling sorry for the guy because he was like so misplaced on the planet. And watching him walking on the beach was, and it was right after the moonwalk, and he looked on the beach like those guys did on the moon. That's how, how it 
how at home on the earth he was. Right. <laughs> he he just was not at home on earth. I envision him wearing a suit. Yeah. Yeah. Or whatever. Or or you know he did sometimes wear suits and sometimes it was informal sportswear that was completely formal. <laughs> yeah. And with Pat in tow and sometimes alone. So. But even his face. I mean, huh? he his face his features are like a caricature of a human being. Yeah. He's funny looking. They were carved. Yeah. Very easy subject to caricature. Caricature. Yeah. yeah. I knew a caricaturist once who corrected me. It's not caricature. It's a caricature. Good to know. I'll make a note. Um, <laughs> well, I feel like... Uh, well, of, I, I could go on just one thing about yeah, please, that. Please, please. Because, because they knew everything that was going on. We knew our phones were being tapped as soon as it was announced he was coming to town because all of our phones sounded differently. That's funny. And we knew right away. So we were hanging out at the house and the way that we found out that they knew is he, it was a gated community. So he pulls into the gate one day and it's uh, Mr. Severson, uh, uh, Mr. Ehrlichman and Mr. Haldeman have a message for you that if you ever use any illegal drugs in your house ever again, you'll, be, you'll go away for so long, nobody will ever remember you. So something like that was the gist and so john already had had um he, has, uh, he was given to a little bit of paranoia as an individual kind of uh, you know what suspicious and kind of whatever a little bit great guy a little bit paranoid and i think that's what set him off to liquidate his home and sell the magazine and leave was the the fact that he was being watched in his own home crazy yeah and he was why don't you um back up a tiny bit and paint a picture for us of that time. It seemed like Severson's Surfer Magazine was very conservative prior to your tenure there. And then it went kind of um, more psychedelic and out there. So what was, I'm wondering, was his view of surfing misaligned with reality or was it actually conservative at that time and he was representing what surfing was and then you just kind of ushered in the new era? Yeah, all that's all that's pretty true. Uh, I think. I mean, I wasn't there before I was there. So when I got there, John was uh, uh, playing a lot of golf. Okay. Leaving the office a lot. He needed somebody to, to be in the office to 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 do the magazine because he was playing golf and and um, in his little Mercedes. And so he had this. He had a, and he was living at Cypress Shore, this gated community. So he had taken on this kind of Southern Orange, Orange County um, uh, way of being, uh, and uh, but he'd always been an art kid and was an art Long Beach State graduate in art, and was a um, prolific artist right from early in the fifties when he was a student. He was a, uh, a lifeguard. And he was doing photography from the like late forties. He got into it, so he was pre-qualified to do everything magaziney in his life later on. But he didn't think that way. He was went in the army, uh, went to Hawaii. It was funny the story about him going to the army. At that time, there was uh, whatever uh, draft uh, entity he was um, signed up with. There were two columns, apparently. One was Germany, one was Hawaii. And the names alternated alphabetically down the thing. And he was down for Germany, Severson, down at the S's, right? And somebody up the list dropped out. 
they, you know, they got sick or whatever happened, they dropped out and everybody swished all the way up the line and he ended up with Hawaii. Had that not happened, had not that, whatever that guy is, and no one will ever know his name, if he had not done what he'd done, Surfer Magazine would have never existed. And as a result, we wouldn't be sitting here. <laughs> I mean, it's like, that's it's so just unbelievable. Yeah. It's just so Talking weird. about what you started out with in terms of coincidence. It's all, it's all like morphic resonance, coincidence, whatever you call it. It's all, that's the, it's the way the world works through resonance, vibrational similarities and repulsions and those kind of relationships on the vibrational plane that determines everything. We just don't know it because we swim in it. We don't know. But, um, so he ended up going to Hawaii and, uh, and was a photographer already and, a, and an artist. He'd been done really well at Long Beach. So he was down on Waikiki on the strip right there and he was uh, painting little pictures for the tourists and selling them right out in front of the Prince whatever hotel. And, uh, and then he, he, he got a, a Bolex and started shooting pictures, surf pictures and stuff and started doing the movies and blah, blah, blah. And one of his, like it was his third film, he thought, I need a program for this. And so he did a little program thing called The Surfer, which was Surfer Volume 1, Number 1. And uh, from then it just went onwards. So, so, so do you feel like you, like his view of kind of the surf world was misaligned with reality? or? Well, well I think he was isolated from it. Okay. Because I think I, he was certainly, um, I mean, he his family was from Pasadena. And his dad uh, came down to San Clemente and bought a, a gas station. So he had a business out of, in San Clemente, and that's where he grew up. But he'd come from Pasadena, so I don't know if he ever felt quite at home there. And um, uh, and then he hired this guy, Pat McNulty, to be his... And he had some really good people, John Van Artsfeld, John... Hammersfeld. Hammersfeld, thank you so much and uh, a couple of other people I should remember their name. And um, uh, he had a really good editor for a while that was kind of a, like a freelance editor. And, but he ended up with Pat McNulty being the guy that was uh, sort of the guy in-house, the shop editor. And he really was, when I got there, I when I went to meet him, he was working on a story at a typewriter for Saturday Evening Post in the office. And so he was like, he was kind of a relatively football-y looking guy. It was not like a surf guy. But his kids went on to be real hardcore surfers. He, you know, they were from uh, uh, San Clemente there. And uh, so Pat um, just wasn't too enthused. So I came and, and, and uh, Pat was eliminated after like two weeks or something like oh, that. Wow. So I went from being this know-nothing guy from up north who was just like associate editor to become editor. Yeah, and I'd worked at the Wall Street Journal a bit, but it was more a, a very functional kind of job at the Just Wall Street writing. Journal. General, well, not even writing, communication stuff. I was the network between the old typesetter guys and the proofreaders and the new guys from Texas Instruments, who were installing these refrigerator-sized computers that yeah. had maybe thirty-two K in each one. <laughs> Amazing. Well. It's a big job to take on, especially when you were 24, I think. Was I? I think so. Boy, let me see. I was born in 44. That was, what year was that? That was uh, 69. So 25. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So obviously it's a big responsibility to take on, but do you remember having an ambition for the role? Were you like 
no. full of ideas. And oh, yeah. But but they were the ideas that were extant in the atmosphere at that point in time. So, um, I yeah, I'd been writing for since I was in high school, right? You know, writing short stories and and whatever's. Uh, so I, I was I was prone to journalism and uh, prone to writing, but um, eh, it, there were so many opportunities at Surfer, so many facets of a magazine that I could do. And so I got wow, I could write a short story. I could do an interview with this guy. Um, and a lot, another coincidence, my first interview for the magazine, I I got hired in like uh, May June of sixty nine, sixty eight, sixty eight. And my brother was in Vietnam, and was having a for, you know having a leave and coming to Hawaii. So that my first thing to John was, "Hi, John. Great. Thanks for the job. Can I have a few weeks off to go to Hawaii because my brother's going to be there?" So reluctantly, he let me do it, but he gave me an assignment to do an interview, and the interview presciently was with Fred Hemmings. So there I was at the Outrigger Canoe Club with Fred Hemmings, who I didn't personally know at all at that point in time. And he was the kind of the, the number one jock surfer. He was a football player surfer, and kind of uh, seen by the the elite uh, marijuana users as a bit of a joke. But Fred was hardcore solid, and um, was so I in, out, I interviewed him at the Outrigger, and uh, and the the headline was something romantic like Hemmings is hot, and uh, and sure enough, by the time I got to Puerto Rico for the world contest three months later, Hemmings became the world champion. So it was like another prescient. I didn't have a clue, but coincidentally, that's how it turned out. Yeah. And, uh, but that's also where I met Nat and those guys, and that was a great event. First time I met Nat, he wanted to punch me out. Why is that? I worked for Severson. He was pissed at Severson. I don't know well, why. You had no idea what the beef was? <laughs> no, it was something to do Weird. with some kind of coverage that was not accurate or something like that to do with the shortboard revolution because uh, coincidentally when I came in that was the shortboard revolution so one of our first issues was I just put it down here I just found it interestingly enough over here somewhere uh, with Nat on the cover and a cutout of a shortboard that John Severson traced that outline mm. and that was uh, the shortboard revolution so that was coincident as well have you since reconciled with Nat Oh yeah, we're good buddy. We just talked. He's in, uh, I think he's in. No, he's in Australia with finishing the last week of his book tour, and will be coming up here in a couple next week. When up by up here? Do you mean the U.S. or to actual US, Washington? U.S. Well, he, he goes to Sun Valley. Yeah. So, and I don't go to Sun Valley. Gotcha. So we just talk on the phone or I do emails. Gotcha. Like that, but yeah, but I've I've stayed with him in Australia and. Uh, I'd say we're pretty much familial. Um, it's been a long time. Yeah. Um, Amazing guy. One of the articles that I Matt showed me this morning was a uh, piece of poetry that you wrote and submitted to Surfing Magazine under a pseudonym. <laughs> yeah. Was this a joke? Yeah. Like to prank them? Oh, yeah. Okay. Because I had two thoughts. I was like, that's how Matt presented it. But then I read it and I thought, well, it could be in earnest. Was that, that inner tubes of Hammond's Reef by yes. any chance? Yes. Yeah. Of course, it's a joke right from the start. Inner tubes of I know, Hammond's I know, Reef. I know, I know. But I was just thinking like, what if you <laughs> earnestly wanted to get into poetry, 
but were sensitive about it, so you just published as a pseudonym yeah. in a different publication to yeah. see how it would roll. Drew Anderson, I think. It yeah. Was, that was my uh, stepfather's name was Anderson, and so Drew, D-R-U. Exactly. And, uh, and, and they went on to accept more. Uh, so uh, explain what happened, by the way. Oh. Or so, what your premise was and how it all played out. Well, let's just say that we surfed during the day a lot, and we smoked a lot of reefer at night and worked on the magazine. And so things got uh, uh, creative, and we just had fun. It was just like fucking fun. And uh, by that time, we had an art director named Hyatt Moore, who was a jazz guy, and we had Brad Barrett as the photo editor, who was a blues guy. That was my blues education was Brad Barrett. And then we had John, who was kind of assimilating all this. And uh, I started to write because I had this palette available as editor. I could do whatever I wanted to do, and as long as it didn't upset, I guess, advertisers. And I, I didn't upset too many advertisers, but I did some I did a couple of poems. Uh, and and then John started to compete with me, and he, he did a poem. He's this guy taking over my magazine. He's writing poetry. I do a poem. And so I think um, my being there kind of goosed him out of his uh, creative lethargy. He was comfortable in a lifestyle. So shortly thereafter, within a year or so, he was working on Pacific Vibrations. He was back going to the North Shore, taking photos again. He was kind of watering his own roots. And he got uh, he started to get charged up, have more editorial input. Because for about a year and a half there, he really didn't involve much. It was like, go for it. Which is an amazing gift, you know, go for it. But um, uh, you asked me a question there, though. Uh, I used to have a memory, too. No, no, no. I wanted you to explain to listeners what the premise was for submitting that piece to surfing. Right. Why did you do it and well, how did it all Just because out? they were so, oh, how can I say it? They had Dick Graham, they had these guys. They just seemed to be squares. And they were, uh, you know, posturing as equivalent to Surfer Magazine. And oh, no. So we were, we are noses up in the air to that thought. Oh. So it was just, they were just so vulnerable to it. And so they were, some of the stuff they ran was so poor that we thought, now I look at my own stuff back then, I would, I would prank <laughs> myself. But at the time, uh, they looked so poor that it just was right there for the picking. So we just, I just ran that one up and wondered if they'd take it you know so drew anderson it was the inner tubes of hammond's reef the press the procedure to brick street bombers you know and it was all this full of this uh what's that poetic stuff where you repeat the sound on oh, a, I, on a monopoeia or what yeah, be, yeah. Onomatopoeia. i think that maybe that may be the one that imitates like oh for okay. a wolf i can't remember which one it is but but you basically wrote a poem about surfing hammond's uh, and we and submitted we, it with photo Ron Stoner photos that were rejects from were your publication. Dug out of the trash can. Out of the trash. Literally can. out of the trash can. That and was that was the the criteria was these could only come from the trash can, <laughs> so we just gone through and that may have been what kicked it off was, hey we got this you know that Brad had just thrown out a bunch of crappy Hammond's Reef picks from Stoner and what are we going to do with these oh let's send them to surfing blah blah blah. That could have been the, and Brad might remember that. I don't know. I don't remember which was the, the uh, incendiary that uh, set it off. 
But um, and then the author profile that you sent them was a photo of John Severson yep, himself. Exactly, John Severson in high school or something like that. And they ran the entire feature yep. unwittingly. Unwittingly, and the picture of John and uh, with a little Drew Anderson bio right. that went with it. Yeah. It's insane. Did they ever know? I don't know if they ever. I, th- I would think they would have under under uh, improved management because eventually they ended up with a really good. Uh, good editors and publishers there and so the magazine changed that may have been what was i think that was international surfing was it surfing i think we might have been called international surfing because there were two surfings yeah there was international surfing and then there was surfing which was a peterson publication right. i forget which one it was okay well you said <laughs> they went on to have a really good editor were you patting yourself on the back? Didn't you go on to be editor? No, I was. I was a. Uh, what was I called? A, um, a. Not an associate. I was like a traveling editor. So, uh, yeah. So Dave Gilovich. Yep. And, and before him, my friend Richard Dowdy, who are really quality people all the way around, and both really good editors. And that's what moved the magazine into a caliber that did compete with Surfer legitimately by the by the end of the seventies. So they were pretty close then. Though, I mean, John handed off to, he tried to hand off to me, but I was gone because they'd been bought. He sold the magazine to a company called For Better Living Incorporated, which specialized in massive concrete projects. And I just didn't, that didn't sound right to me to be the owner of Surfer Magazine. So basically based on corporate ownership, I left the magazine and went off to freelance in Santa Cruz and um, and then um, so the the um, John looked around who's going to take over and he found the perfect person in Steve Pesman who had a very cultured background a Laguna family arts oriented uh, surfer core surf Waimea back in the uh, late 50s early 60s somewhere in there and uh but uh, had real credentials all around to, to have the discrimination you want as an editor, probably the discrimination I lacked. <laughs> I had the enthusiasm and not so much discrimination. So where'd you go? Uh, Santa Cruz Mountains. And, uh, and then did freelance. I started freelancing immediately for surfing. And surfing uh, was in need of, um, of uh, editorial backbone uh, structure. So I did... Uh, event coverage, interviews, fiction, all kinds of shit for Surfing Magazine throughout the 80s until the Aussies took over. Uh, <laughs> was that a viable way to make a living? I mean, could you make a living well, you, you know, doing that back in the 80s? I bought a house in the Santa Cruz Mountains for eighteen five. Really? In the Redwoods. Are you kidding? With like three acres, top of a hill, year-round spring water. It was a different economy then. I mean, it, you didn't need that much money. People could live on a thousand dollars a month would be ample, you know. So yeah, so I did that, and I probably did other freelance as well. Sure. And then, uh, and then I started doing uh, ad work with O'Neill. They were in town. I'd met Jack before. It's always summer on the inside. That was my slogan for their company right. when I first got on with them. It's a big one. <clears throat> yeah, it was. Uh, How does that work? You just obviously get paid your salary, and they get that, and run with it in perpetuity i don't know man i've been wondering about like you that should be getting i, I thought i'd get back. a mill out of that one for, <laughs> by now no it's not fair at least wetsuits but john uh but uh, 
Jack kind of led me there because he, he he wanted to. We were at a contest up at uh, Waddell Creek, north of, north of uh, Santa Cruz, <clears throat> kind of beach break event. It was going along, good conditions, and a lot of surfers. It must have been one of these 4A kind of things. So a lot of surfers were up there. They needed rubber. So Jack had a, his one of his Jaguars, and uh, he had multiple Jaguars all the same. So he could shift cars around. They would all, you just noticed that that one had a dent, but this one, now it didn't, and that kind of thing. Silver Jaguars. And so he had a trunk full of rubber, and he was kind of handing them out. And so I got in line and said, hey, Jack, I uh, think I might get a, you know, you know, sleeves or something like that. And he said, sure, sure you can. He hands it to me, and he doesn't let go. And I go, well, uh, he goes, yeah, I can do me a favor. I need a, I need a uh, headline for an ad. He said, you know, it's like because if you wear a wetsuit, you can surf year-round. You know, it's whatever. This expands the world of, of surfing and stuff like that, you know. And it just came to me. It's always somewhere on the inside. And um, all right, and he let go of the wetsuit. So I got the wetsuit, and uh, he got wow. the slogan. That was the transaction. Wow. Later on, I, that was before I got hired by him to, to, to be his advertising guy, which yeah. I did from, what uh, years? 78, 79, 80, 81, something like that. Okay. That's right when I came into the picture. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Jack was great. Jack, Jack was a trip. His family was a trip. That really interesting family. Um, tell me about your exit. Has there ever been an official exit from the surf world, or what do you view as your exit from the surf world? I don't know. You know, it's it's interesting because it's my relationship is very attenuated, Uh uh, probably because uh, my wife uh, and I got married in uh, 78. But by that time, I'd already gotten into uh, uh, studying a philosophical system based on the ideas of a guy named George Gurdjieff and a, and a sidekick of his called Peter Ospensky. And they have a, um, um, what do you call it, a philosophical system. Uh, the system is called the fourth way. There's, you know, there's the, there's the way of the, the, the there's, there's a, a system where by you, the bed of nails and, okay. uh, and pain deprivation, the fakir, the fakir, F-A-K-I-R, the fakir, the way of the fakir. It's based on, it's a physical way to reach higher states. Okay. You're going to be in so much pain, you're going to transcend your physicality. And then you have the way of the monk which is the, the emotional way through faith and spirit and oh, I'm one with God kind of thing. Then you have the way of the yogi, which is the mind control thing, which is discipline of mind and this kind of thing. And that gets you there. And, and the fourth way is based on uh, sort of like the combination of those three. It's, it's based on the idea of multi, a multi-brained system. The human being a multi-brain, we have different brains. We have an instinctive brain, our biological, our heartbeat, my instinctive brain is working right now. And, uh, and I have a moving brain. That's where I learn speech and all these gestures and things are my moving brain. I have an emotional brain. Oh, I wonder how she's doing now. And I have an intellectual brain, which allows me to put ideas together. So that, that sort of view of the human machine and the states that can come to that machine form the background of my um, studied and assimilated philosophy, you know, and then from that I've just kind of gone off and wiseacred myself to the present moment with what, morphic resonance. <laughs> <laughs> what, um, 
what do you think is the impetus behind that pursuit? Well, I'm going to plan in outer space. I don't know about you, but I don't have no idea how I got here. I really have no idea where I'm going. But I've got all these coincidences, which now I would describe as being an ongoing uh, drama of morphic resonance. You know, just the way things happen. You know, I, I can't explain it, but there they are, and things happen at the right time. <clears throat> I do know that life is a wave, and your attitude is your surfboard. I've learned that much. And so the attitude's a big one. It's probably all we really control. I mean, you can drive more carefully or less carefully and that kind of thing. But if your emotions overtake you, you can't even drive carefully. <laughs> Things can happen. Yeah. So, I'm not uh, sure if that's the most profound thing I've heard in a long time or the cheesiest <laughs> thing I've heard in a long time. There you go. Life is a wave and your attitude is a surfboard. It's true. I don't disagree with it. Yeah. So the attitude. So what I tell people, I explain this to people because I put it at the footnote of my little emails. It's that if you're if you're not riding a wave, and if you're too aloof with yourself, you put the nose up in the air too much, and you start to plow a little bit, you create drag. And if you're too down, you pearl, right? But if you're just slightly positive, right? That slightly positive. Now you're playing. And so this, uh, what is the attitude that's slightly positive that keeps you going the best? And the attitude is gratitude. That's the attitude. Yeah. Being in a state of gratitude, you're going to plane. And then, you know, once you're planing, because you don't, really didn't control anything from the onset of your life to now, you really didn't control anything. So if you're in that attitude, if you're, you have the best chance for the best possible outcome in any situation, so work on your attitude, bro. That's, <laughs> that's about it. That's all you got. So simple. It is, but it's moment to moment, and that's where the Gurdjieff work comes in is being present in the moment. Yeah. Divide your attention. You know, I'm sitting here talking to you, but I'm also aware that I'm here sitting talking to you. How long? When was the last time I was aware that I was sitting in a chair? Hmm. You know, we're yeah. swept away. Yeah. Um, do you still write? When I can, I started this thing called Drew's List up here, which has become popular and it becomes my means of support. And my son works for, you know, now with me and he, he's in Finland. So we publish actually every morning about 4 a.m. from Finland uh, to these people on Whidbey Island. <laughs> it's very strange. Um, what was the impetus for Drew's List? Was it a business endeavor or was it just... You saw there was a need for something? When I came here, when I came to Whidbey in 90, well, was it? Yeah, 93, 91, 91. Um, uh, I was working with Patagonia. I was Patagonia's, um, uh, I was in charge of all the internal words for Patagonia. I was in charge of their advertising, their catalog, everything. And so I did all the the words. And so, but we needed, we needed to move. We were, we couldn't afford to live where we would want to live in Santa Barbara County, so uh, or Ventura for that matter. So we started looking around, and I'd been to Whidbey before, back uh, through a chance, through a friend, back in the summer of 72, during the Republican National Convention. And I came to Whidbey after we'd finished roofing a house to celebrate, and came to Whidbey, so that's, oh, cool. So when we started looking for a, a, a place to relocate from Santa Barbara, um, I was going to repurpose my job because it was right when computers were coming in. And so guys at Patagonia 
had preceded me in departing Ventura, the, the guy who was in charge of the uh, fishing product went to Montana. And the guy that was uh, Paul Parker that was in charge of ski products and snowboard products, he went to Colorado. So I said, well, I should go somewhere too. So I started looking and I'd been to this place and knew about it. So we came and bought a house, moved up here and I had my job at Patagonia. Two months after we moved here, Patagonia went into a financial crisis based on a, a re retail downturn during the 1991 season. And uh, they had underperformed. Security Pacific was their bank loan company. And Security Pacific wanted to loan them substantially less than they needed for production the next year. And in trade-off to get the amount of money they needed, they wanted to have management say in the way the company was run. They wanted to eliminate daycare, have a dress code, get that volleyball thing out of the backyard, and blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and Chenard said, fuck you, and instead moved his European director of operations, a guy who you know, was in France at the time, he brought him in, and that guy's background was French steel mills, and he knew how to fire people. So they laid off 180 out of 520 people. And I had really set my department up beautifully to be able to be here. I was not needed. So <laughs> here I was on an island in the Pacific Northwest with a gutted farm, farmhouse and no job. Wow. So, so out of that, I was up in the Ferris wheel. I looked across from the Ferris wheel. I could see this other island over there. And I said, what was that? And I, when I got down, I asked somebody. They said, oh yeah, it's Camino Island. Oh, it's Camino, what's that? He said, well, it's part of Island County. Really? How do you get there? Well, you have to take a ferry over there and do the blah, 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 blah. You can't get there from here. I thought that was odd. And that suggested the idea that we should hook those things up. So I came up with the idea of doing an independent kind of newspaper thing to service, connect those islands. And I thought, well, it's a whole bunch of islands up here, and they all have an independent newspaper owned by a guy in Canada. Hmm. How about if we do an independent newspaper well, we'll call it the Island Independent, and it's going to connect all these islands in the North Skagit. Well, what do we call it? Not the Skagit, but the North um, Puget Sound. But it's not the Sound, really. So we called it the. Um, what's the name of this body of water? I'm embarrassing now. It's too obvious to me. So we connected all those islands together. We had, did a logo that shows them. I'll show you the logo when you're done with it. It's kind of cool, and um, it was a free paper came out fortnightly. Um, I was a, I got enlisted to be, I put our kids in Waldorf school. It was one of the reasons we came to this area because they had a Waldorf school. That was one of the criteria of the places. We looked in Eugene and we looked in Santa Cruz and we looked in all these different places. And Whidbey, I'd been here, I liked it, had a Waldorf school, bingo. So we bought into this place, it was cheap. And um, yeah, so, uh, uh, so they elected me board president right away. Like I, we came in like that summer and by September I was the president of the board. The other board had fled and I knew not why, but I found out as time went on. <laughs> they left us no information at all. They left this poor guy at the front desk who knew what was going on, kind of the sort of sort of, sort of administrator guy. So there we were, we've been here ever since. And in that, essentially that Southern Whidbey community. So, um, so I did the independent for three years. And then um, in 92 and 93, we had a succession of three hard drive crashes that completely destroyed the bookkeeping side of the business. And I had a great partner who rebuilt it once, rebuilt it twice, 
and this was back in the day where you didn't have thorough backup or anything. And uh, the third time was we just he just couldn't rebuild it in time. So we went out with like fifty thousand in receivables, and we just couldn't get it together to do another issue. Crazy. You still see independent bumper stickers around. Do you? It was a hot publication. It was good. How often were you surfing when you were in Santa Barbara working for Patagonia, and how much did that factor into your or create consternation for you with moving up here? Yeah. So um, when um, when I lived in Southern California before I moved to Santa Cruz, I lived in the Valley, <clears throat> and I surfed Malibu, Secas, County Line, and then the winter time, uh, California Street and Ventura and Rincon. I was fucking in love with Rincon. Oh man, that is just, and those days, which was say, this is talking about 64, 65, 66, right in that period of time. Um, I don't know, I I'd, I'd, uh, I'd, I remember I always I had a you know, requisite Volkswagen van, drive up to Rincon, park right on the highway, because there was no parking, no lot there at the time. And uh, I'd be in the water, not that early, by nine or 10, something like that, I hit the water and I wouldn't get out. And the problem with Rincon is each wave was so energizing that you couldn't help but paddle out again. And so I'd be out there and it was, sun went down and I'd go up to Foster's Freeze and Carpinteria and get a burger and fries and drive back to the valley, you know, and it was, it was the best. And during at least two periods of the day, I'd be the only guy out at Rincon because the morning crowd would come, that would go, the lunch crowd would come and go, and I would just sit out there, and eventually I was alone, and then eventually I was alone again. And I'll tell you, that's about the best thing in the world. Well, later when I worked <laughs> at Surfer, because John Severson lived next door to Richard Nixon, and when Richard Nixon came, the military was on the beach and you couldn't go down there. Well, that also was the point of view where you knew when Richard left. So the call came to Surfer, he's gone. I was in my car, I went, parked at his thing, went down the little driveway there, down to Trestles. Nobody's at Trestles, nobody. And sometimes two days before they realize he left. So I had a lot of Trestles to myself, yep. like literally alone. I was down there one time in the evening, just exhausted from surfing enough waves. And I'm walking back up, and as I'm leaving lowers, I see this guy on the beach, way down past church, you know. But I could see, I could barely make out that it was moving towards me, you know. And uh, so I started walking back, and eventually, he's running the whole way. He kind of caught up to me, and I stopped and turned, and the guy's like, obviously been running a long way, but he was in good shape because he'd run all the way from Oceanside. Wow. Or probably maybe walked part of the way, but he had escaped the brig in Oceanside and was fleeing. Oh my gosh. Don't say that I helped him, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> Crazy. It's like, wow. Crazy. Yeah, so I had a, a, a recurrence of that. So. At Red Rink on times when surfing a really good point break with nobody out. Yeah. Is awful, awfully good. Yeah. I can't say that I've. I mean, I've been in Southern California my whole life and I've never gotten those opportunities. Uh, but how hard was it for you to give up surfing to move? Uh, um, so, well, it was a stage move. When I moved to Whidbey, I calculated that there's going to be waves here because uh, Central Whidbey 
lines up at the Strait of Juan de Fuca. And indeed, there is a surf spot here when I first, as soon as I got here. I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, Point Partridge up there. So I, I went up there and I got it on a perfect 18 inch day. <laughs> and I took pictures of it and then I went over to, to then I went over to, Van, to, to over Vancouver Island to Port, uh, Jordan River. And I took a picture of the guy who's got the shack out at the end, pointed, or did at the time, the Jordan River, and took some pictures of Jordan River just peeling off, just perfect. I sent these to Pesman, and he ran them in the Surface Journal, which I, no, no, that was not the idea. They're just FYI, buddy, not right. for everybody. But uh, it took me, well, and then the, the, the family thing of my, my, uh, my son and my daughter, the, the, it, it turned out to be a drive, and um, everything's got to be just right. You have to have a, you know, 190 degree swell, about 10 or 12 feet on the coast, coming straight up the gullet of the Strait of Juan de Fuca with an east wind blowing, and you're going to get really good. But, you know, I, I couldn't afford the time or the gas, so I didn't, I didn't really surf here at all, you know. So how... How does that make you feel? How challenging was that? Well, I, I used to go to California, like I said. We'd go down there a little bit for these trade shows, and I'd surf a little bit there. No, I'm an ex-surfer. and um, Do you even care? Do you miss it? Well, the crowd thing is a disincentive. I've got a, <clears throat> a two-wheeled vehicle out here, and I've got a... I've got the... Got the best bike riding turf in the world here, unless you're in a really dirt off-road stuff. But for street riding, for road riding, we've got lots of hills that'll put you to a, a good test. But then none of them last over maybe a nine-minute, eight-minute upgrade uphill. <clears throat> so otherwise, you're getting this kind of thing all the time. And there's almost always a, kind of a shoulder room on all the roads. The roads are maintained stupidly well because we have military in the north end. And that makes sure that all the roads are really good here. So you have excellent roads, you have lots of hills, you have bucolic environment. You can ride with your friends and talk and you're gonna see a car every couple of minutes go by. You know, so cycling has become my thing. So that's what I do for so recreation pretty much. And then I- Great, yeah. but is cycling the same as surfing was? Of course not, no. But surfing is not the same as surfing was. Surfing has departed from those days, and the fact that those days are so celebrated in advertising and you know in in people's uh, nostalgic reservoirs, you know it's it's not that. I mean, yeah, you can. I'm sure you can have a, a great day. Guys up here don't want to mention that too much, but guys up here who work the straight out here, they're uh, I know a few guys that I'd stay in touch with that work the straight uh they, they on the swells and the tides and the winds and they got it dialed they know where to go <clears throat> they get waves all the time um but i see that i see videos occasionally of what they're celebrating like, eh, it's, it's okay it's a lesser version than what you had to yourself when you were a kid trestles trestles malibu rincon I and mean, then santa cruz the hook the lane pleasure point oh, those are good waves those are good waves. Here, you don't you don't really get waves like that. Oregon, I surfed. I worked in Oregon for a while, Southern Oregon. Did a lot of trips down to Oregon, working for a windsurf magazine down in Gold Beach. 
and got surfing down there, and that was that was pretty good. Not as cold as it might be, but not as warm as it might be. Yeah. The reason why I want to kind of dig into it and ask you about it is just because I feel like everybody goes through life changes. I mean, we all, presuming we all grew up in our teens and 20s having a very surf-centered life, mm-hmm. and then you go through changes, it's actually really hard to um, adapt to those changes and accept that it's okay to not have a surf-centered life. Yeah. I have this guilt when I know there's waves and I'm at work wondering why I'm not wishing I was at the beach. Yeah. It's like, and then I have to remind myself, well, it's because work is fulfilling for me. That's a good one. You know? But I have no waves here. Right. But you had decisions to make along like, the way yeah. to remove yourself from those waves. So Yeah. But work is highly fulfilling. I'm doing the same thing I was doing when I was a kid. How so? Well, when I was 11, I got a paper route. And it was a rural paper route. And I had to walk up and down and up and down two very long rural streets out on, just beyond the city, the town boundary, western New York State. And dealing with dogs, dealing with snowdrifts, dealing with this, is and that, taking my girlfriend for a walk with me and this up and down. So every day after school when other kids went out, well, first American Bandstand. And then, oh, got to get back to the route, do the paper route and do the paper route till dinner time and come back and do that. And then maybe I had to do babysitting at night or, you know, and then I had lawn mowing jobs and window washing jobs and this kind of shit, you know. So I've always had school, work, you know, and, uh, and then family. And, uh, and then girlfriends became a big bubble in that. And surfing was like another girlfriend, you know. And then it was like, wow, that got to be the biggest girlfriend. And then the work situation fed the surfing thing with server. It was like, fuck. I mean, even before that, but I was commuting 50 miles each way across the Santa Cruz Mountains to get my job at the Wall Street Journal. So that was a that got to be a very fast 50, I'll tell you. <laughs> yeah. Well, started this kind of part of the conversation asking if you still write. Yeah, and I uh it was do you, write, do you write creatively at this point? Not really. Not really. I don't even know if I think creatively anymore. It's a it's an interesting you, world. It's a it's we're in a I get I get the New Yorker every week and I read the New Yorker in the bathroom. You notice the New Yorkers all piled up in there? That's <laughs> I it. saw one under my computer. <laughs> that's it, man. It's like, that is my, that is my, the New Yorkers and the New York Times. And uh, I don't read the, the local paper, but uh, I don't have time for that shit. But this world is so nuts. It's hard to have kids and be hopeless. And it's really, it's not a, it's not a nurturing posture, you know? So you want to instill uh, hope for your kids, you know, but without being too artificial. I had a first marriage that, that was never a good marriage and it ended um, poorly. And there was a, a son who died at the age of 26 from cancer. Oh, wow. And, um, he lived to be 26. Wow. So. Do you feel that kind of that hopelessness has zapped creativity from a writing standpoint? Is that what you're saying? Oh, no. I, I don't. No. I, I think being busy. 
I think be I work until my list. This list is a. I'm up till at least two every night. No way. Yeah, and often till three or four. And it used to be worse. I used to see every dawn. And then my son started helping me out from Finland because of technology. And because of, what's his name, Mr. Jobs? Yeah. I can find my way home with, a, with my phone. Yeah. <laughs> I cried in the dark, you know? So, um, yeah, so my son helps me out now. And I'm hoping he'll take this on or sell it or do something with it. But um, I hope he keeps it going because people really like it. Do you uh, miss creative writing? Ah, you know, uh, in a way, I'm creatively writing this moment. I mean, this is, our life is, is, is acting that out. We're acting, you know, we're playing the part of ourselves in the life. We're trying to be as true to ourselves. Well, when people even say, try to be true to yourselves, it means that you have to attempt to do that. You can't just automatically have that happen. So there's an art form to being true to yourself. And there's an art form about not fooling yourself about being true to yourself and all that kind of shit. So I got some fucking great projects I would love to do. I know I've got them outlined. They're ready to go. All I need to do is somebody somebody take this over yeah. and I can go do this. Because a couple of them you're going to love to read. They're Surf really projects? Good. Huh? Surf projects? No. Uh, one involves the era of Sir Francis Drake hmm. and a fictionalized person on one of his voyages and where that person ends up interesting and another one i did actually did we did a screenplay here with a there's a a um a former hollywood actor who lives on the island who's also a screenwriter and uh, has been a screenwriter in the past and writes a lot of plays here and has done a lot of play play work on the island and put together groups of people to do plays and very creative guy uh you know, all those Peyton plays and those shows, he was a spit bit actor on a whole bunch of shows back in Gunsmoke, those kind of shows that your parents watched. Um, so he and I did a uh, one based on the disappearance of the Baron Arnaud de Rene in 1989, who was a windsurfer, but also one of the first people to start surfing in France in the 1960s. And was one of the group of kids that when Deborah Carr came there to with her husband Peter Vertel to make, I think it was Death in the Afternoon or no, it was the uh, Sun Also Rises, the, the Hemingway movie. Um, they were based out of Biarritz, and and Peter Vertel had brought his Malibu surfboard, one of the balsa boards, early balsa board over there, and the kids were all excited and stuff. And Deborah Carr, the actress, actually started the first surf club in France which was, you know, Surf Club Beeritz or something like that. And these two kids who were in this family, which has a really interesting history, Arnaud and his brother Joël, who remains kind of strategic in the scientific side of the French government. Uh, anyway, they uh, their story began in surfing and in the water, and Arnaud eventually ended up being a big windsurfer, started the speed sailing events, in, first in Maui back in... 78, 79, 80, around that era, 81. And then he began to go on, anyway, incredible, true fucking story. And then he disappeared at sea between mainland China and Formosa after a series of already controversial crossings. And that just is the beginning 
my story. Wow. <laughs> Wild. It's a, it's a fucking great fucking story. But the thing is called crossings, because that's what he called these things when he crossed between Miami and Cuba, and when he crossed between Spain and Morocco, when he crossed between oh, Alaska and Siberia. Wow. <laughs> it's a great... Um, anyway, there you go. What surf media do you follow at this point? Or I, do you? I'm a surf junkie on the uh, W... I really only have patience and time for the WCT, WSL. It's awesome. But I've been wanting to write an article about the uh, capitalization of surfing. Um, you know, this thing started in a house on the North Shore in the 1967 um, with um, what's his name and what's his name getting together, what's his name. And they <laughs> they talked about you know, having a, a, a high-level circuit back in the day. And uh, and then that started, you know, Fred Hemmings was involved pretty soon on after uh, Fred Van Dyke was one of the original guys. They put this thing together. And I was in the room there at the, what used to be called the Cooey Lima Hotel when they put that together in 1970, 71. And <clears throat> they conceived of this thing. And they started to put it together. They had that kind of circuit in Hawaii of uh, three or four winter events and to kind of create a, a circuit thing. And then it was co-opted by the Australians in the, uh, what was the first year? 76, where Peter Townend said, ah. And these guys were already into it. They were going to contests, uh, you know, from California to Hawaii to Japan or wherever they went. <clears throat> and they put together the circuit towards the end of the year. It was like October, November when they put they declared there was going to be this circuit, ASP or something like that. And based on the results for that year, Peter Towner became the first world champion. But it really wasn't. They didn't all lead off from the starting line together. <laughs> it was really... Yeah. And, and the trophy was ripped out of the... Uh, out of the cupboard at the uh, Outrigger Club. So anyway, so they took it over, and then, and then, then they then they took over their own thing, because Fred was involved. They got him out of there, and then it became Ian and PT, and the, kind of the bronzed Aussies concept, and and then so the whole thing was kind of de-Hawaii-fied and became more of an Australian thing. So in the beginning, the Peruvian Australian. Uh, Peruvian Hawaiian alliance is pretty strong. So that's the first contest, the pro contest. To be fair, the first pro contest or the first world contest was in Australia. And in, uh, in, uh, what's his name? The advertising promoter guy from uh, Sydney put that first first thing together with oil company sponsorship. Everybody came down there. It was a really a, a well done event for a first event. It was a well done, well done event. So they did this contest, and then the Australian, I mean, the Hawaiians and the Peruvians got together and said, fuck them. And they had a world event in Peru the next year right. and declared that the first world champion. They just, they just, so it's, so the whole Australian thing was kind of a revenge. And now, as I understand it, and I meant to Google this before you showed up, I think now some kind of, some Santa Monica billionaire owns a WSL. Yeah, Dirk Ziff. What's with that? Who's he? I think he kind of rescued it and offered to fund it 
you know, to a tune of $20 million a year loss yeah. or something for a number of years to try to get it up and running. So you do watch the CT, though? Oh, yeah. I mean, as much as I can. And uh, typically, the, the problem like this last contest is like, I'm just going to bed when it's getting good, you know. Right, so right, right. Then I have to get up. And something about watching replays is like, I want to see it real time. So, yeah, if I'm in the time zone and if I can do it, I watch, you know. And I'm still a big Kelly fan because he's going to be 48 years old coming up this next mm -hmm. season. Will he pull out? Will he go one more time? So he wants asking, to be in the Olympics, apparently. I've been asking that for years. I'm, I'm whether he's going to retire or not because I feel like I wish he would have retired at the top of his game and it's hard to watch him lose to Leonardo Fioravanti in round two in France. True, but he had one his one he had one wave that was as good as the other way, you know. So he just he needed one more wave. Yeah, that's you know Kelly's always had since I've been watching this stuff. He's always had the weirdest luck on waves for heats. He gets these, you know. He gets to go out right after it just deteriorated to the point they were going to go. Well, they said, well, we'll let these guys go out, but then we'll call it off right after this heat. Right. That's the heat Kelly's right, in, right, right? right? He gets shit to surf on, you know, which is insulting. Yeah. I, I think he hasn't been honored sufficiently for uh, being his milestone breaking. But on the other hand, his big rival isn't alive So yeah. from the day, so there's that. You know, I guess justice is just what happens. Do you um, still read any surf publications, print publications, or uh, digital for that matter? I, um, Surface Journal. I, I read when I can. If it, if it fits in my bathroom rack, I can read it. It's and not as pliable as the New Yorker. No, the New Yorker is really easy to handle, man. Yeah. You know, but it's a little too slick to use for toilet paper. I found that good point. Uh, slippery. Um, do you read any surf websites? Mm -mm. Not really. Because uh, the content isn't interesting to you, or you're just out of time? So you interviewed Chaz, right? I do a co-hosted show with Chaz, yes. Chaz is a weird fuck. And um, I have such a natural distaste for that person, and I don't know him. But he's, like, so fucked up, and he makes being fucked up a virtue. And that's his deal, is to be a fucked up virtue. And so, and I've known people who've done that, have been that, you know. But ultimately... It degrades my civilization. It really, it really is not contributing to the wholesome value that life could offer. And he's not alone in this. I mean, there's there's uh, billions of people now who are probably not conducive to to health and happiness and well balance. But you know, what does he eat? Um, you had a few meals with the guy. What does he I, eat? I'd, I've seen him drink more than I've seen him eat. I honestly have not seen him eat hardly at all, but he's uh, right. drinks a bit of vodka and coconut water is his main intake. That sounds good. I like Tanqueray and tonic myself because it's fruity and I'm, really... I'm Hendrix and tonic. What's Hendrix? Gin. Is this a brand name, Hendrix? Yeah, yeah, yeah. God. How about uh, Bob Dylan's wine? You seen a bottle yet? No, I have not. Heaven's Are you door. kidding me? My brother sent me this for Christmas last year. Bob, Bob Dylan makes this? He, well, well his name says, is on it. Yeah, his name. Yeah, he licenses his name's use with this product, and he apparently, you know, taste tests them and does this kind of stuff. I was gonna ask. And this you. is the ten-year-old one. Trade you. I was gonna ask you if that was. Um, that that one hasn't been opened yet. A portrait of Kate Blanchett on your wall, right there. That's my daughter. 
She did that? Did that. And she did another one better, but it, at the school she was going to here, they wanted to have a student art show. And so, they, oh, can we use your thing for the student art show? She never saw it again. Do I'm you know what so I'm talking about, though? Huh? Do you know what I'm talking about? That they made a Bob Dylan biopic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. With Kate Blanchett. I know. That does look more like her. The first one looked more like Bob and less like Kate. Well, Great. Kate yeah. looked unbelievably similar to Bob mm-hmm. in the film. I'll take a hit. Yep. That's all you get. We're preserving this for at least another year. That's Heaven's Door. It's delicious. Knock, knock, knocking on Heaven's Door. It's fantastic. Double barrel whiskey. This one, he makes, I think, four or five different... Um, Shoot, know, I'll stock up. Varieties. <laughs> With... Um, is this your writing or is this... No, that's his. That, that's Maggie's a, a copy of his uh, typewriter copy from... 115th Dream or one of those songs that came out on, on uh, which album? Probably, um, which album? Bring It All Back Home Again or Highway 61 Revisited. I'm a huge fan, by the way. I, you I, I did. You would, I would have put you on the list and I will next time. A few years ago, I did a Tuesday night Walt Whitman quote. Sent it out to my world list. This was everybody on Drew's list plus everybody I knew in the world. So it like went out to... 12,000 people, and it was a quote from Walt Whitman every week, Tuesday night. And I did that for three years, and I thought, well, time for change. So I did Bob. I did Bob for like a year, and then last year when we were doing these moves because of mold and shit like that, I lost my connection to my server that put those out for me on the list, and and then I used a different server for this and try not, as I, anyway. For technical reasons, I ceased to do my Tuesday night thing, but but I did it, and I have intentions of redoing it. Okay. But then I thought, beyond beyond Walt Whitman and Bob Dylan, who else? Who would be number three in that? Who did that? Somebody who speaks so broadly that you could go on and never run out of stuff. I wouldn't even dare try to guess yeah. who could be in their same category. Um, there's got to be somebody. I you know. One of my favorite endings to any film, it was a documentary, Scorsese's documentary on Dylan. Uh, yeah. Remember it? Uh, the Where end. he's like walking out on stage to play. Yeah. And uh, it was somewhere in England. Yeah. And his fan, his folk fan base is there to see him, but he's obviously playing electric at this point. 66. Yeah. yeah he's traveling with the, the And band. they're shouting down at him and they're just like, you know, you're a liar. <laughs> And he's he turned, says they're a liar. He he responds to them. No, you're they a liar. Say, they say they call him. They say Judas. Judas. He goes, you're a liar. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and then he turns to the band and says, "Turn it up." Turn it up. <laughs> and he's singing to them though. I mean, he's singing. Yeah. How does it feel to be out on your own, like a Rolling Stone? Yeah. And they don't know yet. I mean, they view him as this folk god who was singing their anthem, and here he is singing their anthem to them. Yeah. Which they don't even know. It's kind of like a reincarnation on some level. It's amazing. Oh, this guy's still doing it. Like it, he, this, this spring he played Europe heavy, and Northern Europe mostly, and then he, um, and then he's that tour ended, and there were no dates for the rest of the year for 2019. And I thought, oh, 78 years old, he's hanging it up, and he just put up another big tour again for the fall. So it hasn't ever stopped. It's crazy. I know. He Did stopped you, for a while back in the in the 80s but did you see the new documentary on netflix the rolling thunder review yeah it's good yeah it was good it was good and 
got criticism because it mixes facts and fiction or something like that. And I don't know. It, it was a, also, it meandered a little bit, but I still loved it. Loved seeing oh, the yeah. footage. Um, loved hearing Sharon Stone's story about Bob saying that um, the song was written for her. Oh, yeah. And then she was so, I mean, basically he was saying it so he could sleep with her, you know? And then she was so enamored by that. And then come to find out the song was written like five years before he ever met her. (laughs) (laughs) A 16-year-old Sharon Stone. Yeah. Um, He's a phenom. So back to kind of my list of questions. Um, We were talking about surf media that you follow. You're not a fan of Chaz. We can move on from that. Well, yeah. I mean, I get it. But he's interesting. He's interesting, but, but... What's the? It's like the other one. The article that just came out in um, New York Times by Dwayne. Dwayne, on this on this thing, on this one photo, and it's really about the only photo I've ever seen of any kind of Nazi thing going on with surfers. And it was this, and I think they did it for the to film to be filmed. You know, it was just like a a, a surf stunt, you know, and uh, and kind of a takeoff on the biker culture, which already had incorporated the Nazi stuff. So it was like bikerizing that thing for the photo op. And then to build this thing about um, racial prejudice. But it, it got me thinking about, well, why is that? You know, well, you know, there was a very famous black guy that surfed Malibu back in the 40s who ran into the pier during a big swell and died. I didn't know. Yeah. And uh, I forget his name all the time. But he was uh, uh, prominent, one of the prominent, you know, one of the dozen or so main surfers at Malibu pre-1950. But I just, I just don't think, I think the cultural re- reasons for the lack of blacks in, in uh, California surfing is, you know, is just set, setting, location, all these kind of things that, you know, you don't find many blacks going to Malibu. Right. For you know, for the the history of uh, of all the injustices that go back, 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 and they're not anything peculiar to surfing. And I don't think it. I've never heard. You know, I've been. Around, I've talked to a lot of surfers. I never picked up on anybody I've talked to in surfing uh, being less than accepting of people of other tribes, right. whatever they are. I mean, I, I just surfers are the most open people by and large I'm sure there's exceptions but I don't I don't know and certainly any famous surfers that I've known they've all been uh, open to whatever hmm. they're, they're world travelers I mean they're just they don't they they uh, they take a, uh, good vibes with them and they hope to have good vibes in return and that's kind of where they go and they're looking for ways so I don't I don't get that whole framing of surfing in terms of of uh, of white supremacist uh, ideology. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't see it. Personally. But coincidentally, yeah. I mean, coincidentally, all the people at the beach here are white, pretty much. You know, unless you go to China or if you go to Japan. It's a, or if you go to Africa, a little different. Yeah, I mean, it's a reflection of a lot of other cultural and social things happening. You know, it's yeah. So it's expensive to live at the beach, and so yeah whatever groups are able to afford that tend to be the ones that populate the beach. What about these Portuguese people, man? And these Brazilians who are just Portuguese people. Yeah. They rule the world now. One third of all the top surfers are are Brazilians. 
totally. So when Heat. you talk to somebody, find somebody really good to write a story about from the favelas to the yeah. to the top. The, the, Would love to see it. Those guys are motivated to get out of their fucking shit and get into some waves apparently, and make some money. So apparently the same exact thing happened in Rodeo. And Netflix did a wow. series, wow, a documentary series. I forget what it was called. It was um, two years ago or so. Huh. About They weren't connecting it to surfing. It was right. strictly focused on the sure. PBR tour in the u.s about these brazilian bronco riders that are just unbelievable yeah because they obviously have to work for every i would have thought argentinians of course because they're got that tradition sure sure but yeah different different social kind of background for motivation get out of here um question kind of one of my final questions is we started this conversation talking about you getting severson high um (laughs) Drugs are becoming obviously decriminalized and certainly in Washington and California for you and I. Do you have any concerns that drug usage kind of in those early years have mortgaged your well-being in later years or if not your well-being, mental acuity? Interesting. Did I ever have any mental acuity? Uh, um, Interesting. First of all, I wouldn't count uh, THC and... um, and um, what's the what's the other option to THC that, that CBD cannab- cannabis CBD, products CBD yeah. I wouldn't con- I don't call those drugs I call drugs basically pharmaceuticals okay uh, and and extracts things like uh, heroin I call a drug for sure but I, you know I don't know uh, uh, alcohol okay. as much a drug as anything I think. Um, you know, it depends. Um, uh, you know, humans don't seem to be all that good at self-regulation. You know, they seem to, you know, you th- you'd think if you were going down a path that was leading you to destruction, you'd be able to kind of notice that about yourself and modify. But we people seem to that. just pound it. Yeah. They just seem to pound it. I see people using CBD uh, tinctures and things like that that seem to be benefiting from it. I don't get marijuana have I don't I have friends that smoke I still smoke very occasionally I just get too anxious when I smoke I don't uh, and I always did a little bit um, I don't, I'm not I'm not drawn to to that I think to be comfortable with a real hallucinogen I would need to disengage from a lot of shit first I don't want to I don't want to drop a hallucinatory me into this chair right, right. now. It's just yeah. not too comfortable. It'll intensify all the anxiety about your work life and all ah, that. Yeah. Well, the, so, but the question is about as these things become decriminalized, universities are doing longitudinal studies, Yeah. you know, on the effects of psilocybin. Turns out there's a lot of beneficial effect for treating PTSD. Yep. You know, absolutely. Being able to identify and isolate a strain of something and then dose it accurately turns out to have beneficial effect as opposed to doing it in the 60s and 70s where you just kind of didn't know where the batch came from and were experimenting. So my question is, you actually do have longitudinal experience with this, decades of it, and what is your personal opinion on it? Is there, have you experienced either from yourself or the people around you detrimental has it the early kind of exploration mortgaged 
the later years? It's a good question, and I think there are certainly cases where that happened. And um, um, because of the nature of experimentation and in the nature, in the nature of, of, you know, in a, in a psychological, maybe subtle sense, pushing each other to take more, do more, um, not knowing where the boundaries are, searching for the boundaries. Um, but, you know, I think that uh, Timothy Leary and, uh, and Richard Albert, who were the original sort of prophets of this, uh, of bringing this to, the, to our age or to our clientele, um, you know, set and setting. So the first time I took acid, uh, I had a friend who, who uh, secured through another friend a batch of Swiss LSD from Sandoz. Sandoz, is that right? Don't know. The manufacturer, real stuff. Came in a, first time I'd ever seen a tray made out of styrofoam. This is 1966. Summer of 66, it's not illegal yet. Got, 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 went, got scheduled that fall. Still legal. Came in a little plastic tray with a clear plastic dome and there were all these vials in it with a liquid in it that they were the color of Windex, right? Pale blue. And they had two people come, my, my best friend and this woman, who was a mutual friend, to take care of me. And so they stayed with me the whole night as I went through this experiment with this thing, you know, and had a marvelous trip. And later on, I thought, well, you know, and there were moments in the night where I needed help and, and went away and came back and, you know, God, if it wasn't for the lawn sprinklers, I would never would have woke up on that place. And, uh, you know, things happen like that. And I think of people sort of randomizing the ingestion of that and not really understanding where they were going. Not that I did, but they, they didn't understand the significance of where they might go and the opportunity that they were going to have to profit from the experience. If you didn't have that sort of a coaching that Leary brought, because he, he set that up for everybody to be, to be proper. It's not like party drug. It's a set and setting. It's really important who you're with, where you are, what you're doing, what the pressures are. He, won't, he philosophized uh, about that. And, um, and, then, and then we went kind of that, his philosophy carried right through the 60s. And so I remember moving in Santa Cruz in the late 60s. There were these kind of surf communities and stuff. And, you know, we were all, everybody was brothers and sisters and sitting around together. And you, every party, every party you went to involved a circle. You sat in a circle. People passed the joints around the circle like this, right? They passed the hash pipe around the circle. It was a circle. Circle. Every party was a circle. And then came cocaine. I'll be right back. The circle broke up and went into solitary cocaine sniffing events. You couldn't really pass the cocaine in the same way you could pass a joint. And that cocaine thing, and then right with the cocaine, that same December of 69, that came Altamont, the Rolling Stones, the Hells Angels, you know, death on stage, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that was a big rupture. And then right after that was a series of mass murders that came in California. There was a whole synchronicity of of, you know, so cocaine has kind of a edgy energy compared with weed, which is a mellow energy. The word mellow was never applied that I heard to cocaine. I love cocaine, don't get me wrong. But I knew I loved it so much because I had a guy from Peru that would bring uncut straight cocaine in. 
opened up his surfboards, took it out, and shared that. It was fabulous. But my first rule, day one, was I'm never paying a penny for this shit. It's too good. Because if I'm going to pay for this, I'm dead. Yeah. And so that was my rule, and I never did pay a penny for it. And that guy got tired of giving it to me. Good policy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Bon voyage. Yeah. And I didn't have any withdrawal from, and I didn't use it that much, but it was wonderful. I mean, it really, it makes you feel good. And certainly as a social drug, you know, yeah, it can't be any better. And it didn't give you a hangover like like booze does. So I, I say all, all good. And chewing on coca leaves, I don't know what that does. I never did that. But ayahuasca, you know, a lot of people here are into ayahuasca and ayahuasca, the ceremony is what came in with marijuana. There was a ceremonial aspect of it, and LSD initially had a ceremonial aspect, a context, a social context that held people in community around the ingestion of that substance, and there was an appreciation for the substance and where a person might be going with that substance and how we can help guide that person and you know, contain the energy and direct it in a positive direction. But it, every cocaine is every man for himself. Right. So that's so that's that's the problem. So that now you have unregulated drugs, which is something we, you know, dearly appreciate here because we, you know, my wife uses um, uh, marijuana products medicinally, and they're great, uh, really helpful. And my daughter uses them medicinally. My son doesn't ever use them, and I scarcely ever use them. But uh, I appreciate they're there. Yeah, I got some cookies in the refrigerator. Well, but <laughs> in regard to the original question, is there did I did I wander again? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you covered more important ground than my question actually asked. But uh, do the pros outweigh the cons? In your own opinion, uh, the big the first thing when you asked me the question was well at that time we had you know three and a half billion people. Now we're at about getting on eight billion people. So the number of people on the planet increasingly is important. And not only because of, uh, well, there are now more of these than there are people. More phones? More of these devices. And these devices are each receiving and transmitting vibrations, EMF-ish kind of things. And we have no idea what these are doing to us. They're, how, how they're reorganizing us on the cellular and micro-nuclear level. Yeah. We just don't know. And, uh, you know, so we know that if you carry one of these in your pants for a while, it can hurt you. I've heard that. But, so we don't know about that. So you take, you know, you take something that comes from another time and context and drop into this time and context, you know, you can't really predict. I don't think it sounds good. Um, like, again, I don't want to discourage my own children um, uh, or surfers who may be starting now enthusiastically and to say, hey, you guys really missed it. Right. I heard that when I started surfing. You should have been here, you know, yeah. last year or whatever, a day ago. But this is, uh, I, think, I think we're in uh, serious shit. Now, the question should be, we're in serious shit. Will these drugs... And the legalization of these drugs, the availability of these drugs or these substances help us? Or will they make matters worse? You know, we want things that make us not only feel better, but be better. Yeah. And live better and be able to 
help other people better, do better things with our time, and the time goes fast. Get You know how old I am? You said 44? You were born in 1944? <laughs> I could try to crunch the numbers. I was born 4444. Were you really? Uh -huh, at 3 o'clock. And um, Man, you should have held off for another hour. <laughs> it was my mom. I had nothing to do. Well, I mean, no, they say that the baby creates the thing. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm 75 years old. <clears throat> so I don't feel really entitled to much more than that. I'm reluctant to leave because I, I enjoy it here. I really do. But fuck, you, you can't be too greedy. And then you have a town of old, everybody in town now is a white haired person. See how many old people are walking around Langley, man? Shit. All my friends are old. I never knew I don't. I know so many old people, but everybody I know almost is old. And then my daughter and her, that level. And even there, they're in their thirties. And we used to say, never trust anybody over thirty. I can't even trust my own daughter because she's over thirty. <laughs> she seemed trustworthy when she came in. <laughs> oh, those I are like the worst. The ones that seem trust. <laughs> Good point. Those Good are the point. worst, man. Those are the cons. Good point. I don't know. She's working me still. So um, I don't know. So I, do I think it's a good thing? It's a just do the pros outweigh the cons is the only. Oh man, we need guidance in the sense of inspiration. You know, we need uh, heroes who really are uh, not. They're just not idols or actors or figureheads or something. You need need people that are really leaders. And uh, and that means leaders, emotional leaders. I'll tell you who I'm in, into for this election. Can you guess? Marianne Williamson. Really? Listen to her. She's I've listened fucking, to her. Huh? I've listened. You know, and, and yeah, yeah, she's a woo-woo. She's a woo-woo. She talks about the kind of human values that everybody used to talk about, but now they become uncool. Yeah. So she addressed, she talks about them as if they still are cool. Yeah, she doesn't stand a chance, but... Well, why do we all say that automatically? It's like it seems like that knowing that that act of no, that that cynical phrase, she doesn't stand a chance. Well, if enough people say that, she probably won't, and she probably doesn't. But what if she did have a chance? Yeah, it, what she's saying is uplifting and restorative, and actually, you know, from an analytical, scientific, whatever. Uh, and philosophical point of view, way more valid because other people aren't really even address. They address these same revolving set of issues. It's like opening up an egg carton. And there's twelve eggs in there, and they're gonna, they're each gonna, they're gonna shuffle the eggs around. It's gonna be those same twelve eggs every time you open it up, you know. And she's like, you know, making a different kind of omelet. Yeah. Final question for everybody interviewed is: What was the last surfboard that you rode? Oh. Um, the last surfboard. Oh man, I've got a I've got a little quiver in my storage. Um, probably uh, a board made by, by this guy in Santa Barbara that I've kept and to keep going back to. It's like a um, seven four, and I can't even remember the guy's name. He did, did like GB or something like that. I, I associate it was like uh, uh, Ken Bradshaw is kind of a logo, very similar logo to that. Hmm. I can't remember his name. He was in Santa Barbara, and that has remained kind of my my go-to board. Is I need a longer board to paddle. I don't even know if I could paddle right now. And uh, I got 
advanced degenerative arthritis in my upper, upper spine. <clears throat> Years of, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so where, where'd you ride it and when? How long ago? Uh, oh, man. What was your last session? Well, I was going down to Laguna, and, uh, and then um, the last place I rode was out at the coast here. At uh, off of uh, by the reservation, uh, down near the foot of the, the Ho River, um, about um, eight years ago. Wow, it's been a while. Yeah. Do you think you'll surf? Maybe again? nine. Do you think you'll surf again? I don't know. I've been thinking about stand up lately, but you know, I don't know. I have a, some good friends that stand up. This is a good place for stand up. This is you know. Stand up paddling. I just I see people with stand up boards. They just like they geek me out. On flat water, it's fine. No shame in that. Shame what? No shame in doing it on oh, flat yeah. no, water. Oh yeah, no, no, no. And this place up here, you know, kayaking is good too. I like kayaking. I've been kayaking a little bit around here, up in the San Juans and stuff. Yeah. This has got great water for that. But no, somehow, when you're used to standing up, sitting down is so. I don't know. Kayaking is nice. Yeah. I don't know. We'll get back out there. Get one more session in. Thank you. Thank you. How did he die? Well, he thought he'd do one more session in the little heart game. How did he die? Doing what he loved. <laughs> That's all that matters. Oh, man. I think I need warm water. Fair enough. Take a trip. Oh, that's what I need to do. My wife's got uh, coming up on, on her eye surgery, so she can drive again right now in a delivery boy. Gotcha. All right, Drew. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Take it out the window Throw my suitcase out there too Throw my troubles out the door I don't need them anymore Cause tonight I'll be staying here with you Drew Campion's current business that he referenced is Drew's List. Drew is not on social media but I'd suggest that you subscribe to Matt Warshaw's EOS.surf to see images and video of Drew. You can also come to surfsplendorpodcast.com to see some of the things that he and I discussed, including that phony article that he trolled Surfing Magazine with, The Inner Tubes of Hammond's Reef. You can leave a comment there in the comment section, and I will ensure that Drew gets to see that. And one other detail, towards the end of the episode, he referenced uh, Bob Dylan Wine. And I was like, he makes a wine, and then he pulled out the bottle. It actually is uh, whiskey. I realized that we didn't say that on air, but it is whiskey. And it was actually really good. So check that out if you care. Um, but you should also check out Vayer Watches, because they supported this episode and made this all possible. Vayer Watches, V-A-E-R Watches.com. You can use our promo code SURF10. That's the word SURF, and then the numbers one zero. And you'll save 10% off your purchase. You will support this podcast and you will have yourself a beautiful utilitarian watch that will last a very long time. And it's assembled in the U.S. So super cool product and just great looking watch. So VayerWatches.com, promo code SURF10. Thank you for that. One final thanks is to Matt Warshaw who hosted me at his home in Seattle for two days and facilitated this conversation with Drew. I'll be publishing a hour and a half long conversation with Matt in two weeks that he wants me to cut down into one hour, but I don't plan on doing that. So I'll be back on Friday over on The Grit with Chaz Smith, Drew's nemesis, 
and then on Tuesday on Spit with Scott Bass, and then I'll be back here on Wednesday for Surf Splendor. So enjoy the Portugal contest in the meantime, and until then, this is, of course, David Scales for Surf Splendor, reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and shred on. Cause tonight I'll be staying here with you